Welcome to episode 420 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a wonderful conversation with sensei, farmer, winemaker, coming straight out of Stockbridge, Vermont, our resident philosopher, Almighty Todd. We talk with the Almighty about roaring streams, shorebirds, narcissism, quieting the ego, empathy not felt, humans as capital, Zen sickness, the dojo, and watching the grass grow, among other things. We have an EWSA titled Progress. We share an excerpt from an article titled You Must Change Your Life by Harry Kunzru, published in the May 2021 issue of Harper's Magazine. We have a poem by Rainier Maria Rilke titled Archaic Torso of Apollo, and another poem by yours truly called Peace. All of this, of course, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 420 of Troubadours and Tours.
progress. Sunlight on the ridge. Spring trees illuminate auburn and green. As on the ground in small teams, jackrabbits and red-breast robins carouse the grass covered in frost, turning into dew. I turn the corner straddled by a line of pine trees to the house that I call home. Another early day roam up the steps past some potted plants pink and red and open the door into the aroma of Colombian coffee. And I think of a French woman I knew named Fred. I hurry to unlace my sneakers to get to the desk for my pad and pen. Here I am with you writing all of this down. In the little town, high up on an old mountainside, feeling young. Where do we go from here, my dear? Sensei says to quiet the ego in this head and instead to watch the grass grow. Who is watching us, poet Rilke, as we posture and pose? What is this pursuit of progress everyone claims to know? The sun is rising higher and the clouds are dissipating away as the curtain of white floats open to display blue sky. The smell of coffee and the thoughts of more work to be done. What to welcome, what to shun. In this kingdom of land open, the power is love and the glory is to be simply without end or beginning. As the bushes bloom once again in the natural breeze amongst eternal streams and fallen trees, the stars spin on and on.
Almighty Todd. Is that you? Conundrum. It's me. Is that you? (laughs) I think so. I'm pretty Uh, sure. Yeah, I think so too. (laughs) Sometimes I'm not sure. (laughs) If it's me or if it's you. So maybe both. (laughs) (laughs) I'll speak for myself. Yeah, yeah. That's all we can do. Ladies and gentlemen, we have our uh, resident philosopher straight out of Stockbridge, Vermont, farmer, winemaker, and uh, he's a he's a man of many many hats, so to speak. Almighty Todd, so good to have you back on the program, sir. Everything good going all sp- right? Good to be speaking with you. Yes, I'm wearing a a, a winter cap now, <laughs> a winter hat at this time. It's a little bit cold and rainy up here today. Yeah, and it's and, May. Uh, yeah, but you know, <clears throat> it's okay. We need the rain pretty bad. We're um, we've been experiencing a drought up here, as has most of the Northeast um, and other parts of the country too. So, I actually appreciate the slow and steady rain today. Yeah, it's. I was just out and about uh, with my children, taking them to piano lessons, and uh, the st- streams in the area were roaring. It was beautiful to watch. Yeah, it's. It's actually. It feels like the. The runoff's been a little late this year in the sense of because the it hasn't been raining so there wasn't that snow and rain together really making things cook but um yeah the last few days the river's been up here too and um all the the shorebirds and the ducks are coming back and the peregrine falcons just showed up a couple days ago the ones that live up on the cliffs behind the house the white river you're talking about yes the main branch of the white river that comes through town here. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful up there where you live. I love it. I can't wait to get up there and see you guys again. Not too long, much longer, you know. Have you got your shots? You got one, two, both, Yeah, none? yeah, I got both Pfizer. I'm All good. Right. How about you? Uh, uh, next week, I get my number two Moderna. All right. All right. Although, uh, I, we, we probably should have just said shots. Did we just do an advertisement for those guys? Yeah, you know, they're not rich <laughs> enough. You know. They are getting rich off of this. That they are. Yeah, I guess that's okay. Yeah, well, you know, I kind of wondered if, you know, Big Pharma could pull this off if they might rehabilitate their image a little bit, but we'll uh we'll see yeah. where that goes. Yeah, let's not talk about them too much, but Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you and we we you know we exchanged some articles to read uh so that we could prepare a little bit of uh, a milieu for our conversation and i think we you know we, we might have a good one uh you you shared one Let's, yeah don't jinx us <laughs> no but no yeah, yeah no but it was interesting because we you know we do this now and again we'll send one another articles things we found that we've come across that are interesting and um we both sent ones that were kind of complementary to one another like almost different sides of the same coin from my perspective, yeah, um, yeah, quieting the ego—that's something if, uh, what, that you you sent. Uh, and then mm-hmm. uh, what I sent had to do with, you know, what is uh, what does it mean to be a human being, and what what you know, what are we working toward? Uh, you know, things of, of that nature. Um, kind of, as you said, they kind of complement each other. So, where do you want to start? Are you a little Rilke? You know, uh, that, that we could talk about. Uh, there's there are, uh, Eastern philosophers as well. Rilke is a, um, a Western philosopher, I guess you could say. 
where do you want to go? Well, you know, the other thing I had wanted to bring up was um, narcissism, which I think kind of fits in with this these concepts because the the one I was ta- I sent to you was about talking about trying to quiet the ego, um, tame it a little bit. The one that you sent was basically about how we are in a state right now where we are losing ourselves into the process of work and busyness and productivity such that um, our ego is being kind of shaped and disappearing into the system. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing about narcissism is that it's a um, it gets thrown around a lot. You know, in terms of we've just had to deal with some uh, administration driven by narcissism mm-hmm. for four years pretty clearly um, and that that person may even fall into the disordered part of the spectrum. No doubt. Let's not like say a his name. a percent to a per- percent of the population. Um, but there is, is that all there is? Is it really just a half a percent to one percent of the population are narcissists? No, we're all narcissists. We all have a narcissistic component in ourselves, and it's, on some degree, it's healthy because you're you're keeping up, you're you're take, looking out for yourself, and you know your own reality. Um, so that is an important thing. But that percentage of the population, those are people that fall into what would be called uh, diagnosable narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and there are like the two. There are actually a spectrum there where there are ones that are the, kind of like the boisterous ostentatious kind like we've been seeing but then there's also a vulnerable narcissist kind that where it's a little bit harder to peg but in both cases there's a there's a uh, sense of grandiosity of the self or importance of the self while at the same time having a very fragile self-image yeah yeah um so it it creates a situation where the the narcissist whether they realize it or not, tries to get other people to join their reality. You know, to bring to bring people into their reality because everyone else is really just an extension of themselves. You know, everything else is objectified. Yeah. And it's there's this inability to discern between the inside and the outside. And em- empathy isn't really emp- it may be used as a tool, but it isn't felt, or it may be expressed as a a way to be charming. Or um, to kind of ingratiate, but it's not something that's really experienced. So, anyways, this I can't understand what you're well, talking about. I really can't feel what you mean. I don't. I'm just okay. I wasn't really paying attention either. I was just thinking about what I need. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, oh, okay. You're back. <laughs> no, I, I no, but that's it. And and that um, this is exactly where I'm going is that um, that inability to manage the distinction between the inner and outer world um, is something that we all have to deal with to some degree or another and figure out how we fit into it. And the the thing is that the it's it's as if a lot of society and the mechanisms of our culture kind of are right now demanding of us, asking us to to show ourselves in some way or another. And this is a kind of we've talked a little bit in the past about social media and what that does, how people kind of become their own publishers of their lives. Mm-hmm. And people generally don't publish the ugly and, you know, unfortunate stuff. 
if they can help it, they tend to like, portray themselves in a, in a, the finest of light. You know, use that filter, fix up your in the way you look. Um, that this uh, kind of impulse for us to project ourselves and actually almost brand ourselves is, I think, us getting lost in the capitalist mercantile system which kind of goes to what your article was talking about, about how yeah. this idea of how can we be, make ourselves more productive? You know, the advent of taking your cell phone home, which meant that work could get in touch with you was, you know, made that you were more valuable to work because you were accessible then, but then you were like letting work intrude into what would be your personal time. And now we've been living in this pandemic for a year and a half where a lot of us are working from home and now work is in our home. Yeah, and the you know the having to really work to make that distinction of shut the laptop down and go do something else um, that is also a value, but to us personally, not to our overlords. <laughs> right, and and when you look at some of of what uh, you know has been going on over the last decade or so, uh, there are people, as you mentioned, who are are trying to create boundaries and saying, okay, work life, home life. Uh, time to to disconnect. Don't let the via electronic uh, world come into your your personal life. And then there are others who look at it as a, a a means to to do more and to to achieve more, to progress more. When there aren't any boundaries and they can work twenty four seven via you know all the electronic connection that is afforded them. Uh, so there is a struggle, and I, and I think you know between people, different mindsets, different philosophies. And I, you know, I was reading that the group that is more apt to to be excited about um, having that twenty four seven sort of motif are the the single white guys, you know, that uh, don't have families and um, you know that see, they don't want or need structure. The, yeah, and and they define themselves. They define themselves by how how they are progressing. And uh, and they're taught to define themselves by how they're progressing in in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And to what end is the question? Right. right. You know? And then when you think about people like um, there, if that becomes like this prevailing mindset, or that at least th- that is driving a certain amount of the the business world, the tech world, then you think about people who don't immediately naturally fit into that kind of structure, like women who might decide to have children and be out of the workforce for a while that there's like this stigma in some ways attached to you know giving up the work in order to do that other thing and you're kind of you're penalized for it right or or you you do the 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 extra double up and you you try to be the mom and have a professional life which creates a lot of stress and then you, you kind of lose yourself in some ways, I've just known people that have experienced this um, into that external structure that you're you have to maintain, and self care becomes um, a back burner thing, or when I can get around to it. Right. And I'm not saying that's the only place. That's that's just an example. Well, there's that German philosopher. I guess he's a contemporary philosopher that was mentioned in the article I sent you. I'm not sure I'm going to get his name uh, correct, but it's Peter Sloterdijk. But uh, anyway, he uh, talks about how, you know, he asks, actually, what is the human being 
if not an animal of which too much is demanded. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the difference uh, between our species of animal as compared to others. And the question to me was, well, where is that demand actually coming from? Is it external or is it internal? Or is it a combination of both? And is there a, you know, potentially symbiosis or a dysfunctional relationship that can occur there in managing the demands that we have for ourselves? And this is where the the, the narcissist, they know what they want for themselves and it actually doesn't matter what other people need or want. And if they can use other people to get what they want, they'll do it. Um, And at the same time, uh, there are real demands in the outside world. The question is, is, to what extent are we willing to bend to them? Right. And you know, we, we know that the worker in the last 50 years has been putting more and more time and effort into their work, but they're paid less for it than they used to be. And so we get kind of uh, seduced into putting in that extra time for something that's really not paying us as well as it did our parents or grandparents maybe. Right, right. And and I think for the most part, our parents and grandparents, uh, those generations before us, and, and maybe this is a myth in my mind, they, they were doing it primarily to just build a family, you know, to build or, or to build a legacy that, um, you know, their descendants can can uh maybe get a little head start because of uh mm-hmm. not not i don't know if it's any different today or or if we're more lost today we don't even know what the heck the reason is i'm not sure i feel that way well this is where you and i i mean maybe this isn't the same for everybody but you and i are kind of on, in in a similar space in terms of being um children or grandchildren of, Im- of immigrants mm-hmm. and there certainly is among people that come to this country a very that I think, you know, even though I, there are certain po- people that politicize that, oh, they come here to c- get stuff for free. I know I've seen with my own eyes in my own family and other families and in people that have recently moved here that people who come here bust their ass to to survive and pro- provide for their family and their descendants. Um, and so, we and in some ways we can laud that work ethic, but in the same, but also. They kind of get sucked into this capitalist system too, where it's able to derive value from them and maybe not reward them with an equivalent value. Right, and they're bamboozled into thinking that the culture, the old culture they come from, was backward or you know outdated, and and this new culture where you define yourself in this capitalistic context is the progress that they've been hoping for Mm -hmm. and and i i think if we lose a lot people lose a lot of what's best about humanity when they get bamboozled in that way well and i think you know for early generations of migrants that usually it's because you're spending all the time a lot of time working to think your refuge is your family so that time when you, it is downtime, it really is about being together and having those human connections. Um, whereas the modern, you know, American nuclear family doesn't necessarily have those kinds of um, support structures close at hand, and so that's when it becomes tenuous for folks to manage this 
tension between what they want for themselves and what the world wants from them. And it becomes, it gets to a point where this productive capitalist um, human capital mindset, it becomes so pervasive, it gets ingrained in us. And so even, you know, people who are trying to figure out how to take time for self-care and they said, I need to start meditating or something like that, they can actually take that too far. And in trying to, you know, look too far into themselves and, and improve themselves, basically improve the equipment. And they're not necessarily doing it for themselves, but to be better for the world. I, it's a, it's a complicated thing. I, you know, in martial arts, I see people who come to train for a lot of different reasons. And I can see some of these threads where people want to put in all the extra time they can to try and get it. But that isn't really the, the way to get there. And you can't rush it. it. You can't rush it. It, it. There's a, there's like a drip methodology that really is important and you can't, hook up to the fire hose and people there's even in you know like zen buddhism there's this concept of zen sickness which is if you spend too much time meditating and looking in and and finding your own self-awareness that you can actually become dissociated Mm -hmm. from the world Mm -hmm. in such a way it makes it hard for you to interact with normal reality because we've now warped the lens through which we see the world, which in a way kind of to me, to my mind, fits into what happens to a narcissist, the kind of life that they live. Um, But that hyper awareness is like being in a state of high alert all the time. You may be sitting and breathing and just thinking about your breath, but you're so hyper alert about your breath so much of the time that that's the equivalent of being like on edge if there's a tiger around the corner. And that kind of stress level can be not good for the the limbic system you know just for the the brain and the and the body and but we can fall into a pattern like that because we're trying so hard to improve ourselves and improve the equipment when maybe just being for a little while without expectations from the outside without expectations from the inside right Right, and you know, it, one of those two see, articles. And it sounds like a wacky concept, right? Well, you, it doesn't. Just, it doesn't to me. I mean, just being. But, but yeah, from a commercial perspective, yeah. Yeah. Just doing nothing. It makes like, total sense to uh, me. Not not producing or not consuming. Right. Right. Again, get out of that mentality that we've been bamboozled to embrace as our reality, because it's unhealthy, and and it it creates production of some sort but of what and to what end again to be obese to be soulless to be disconnected dis you know satisfied uh given that you don't know who you are or what it life is all about because you're 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 seeking you're, you're seeking meaning in things that have no meaning boy doesn't that sound like that could potentially be a large portion of the american populace yeah including me and you to a great (laughs) extent we're just aware of it i think at this moment (laughs) right you know in a couple hours might be watching breaking bad on netflix for three hours logging back in to finish up on that spreadsheet that i didn't get done earlier 
Well, you know, when you were talking about the the meditation aspect too, it was in one of the articles that we shared where even how, and you can't rush, how you can't rush, uh, you know, the sense of self or the sense of uh, a deeper understanding, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, today we try to rush meditation and we start feeling poorly about ourselves because we can't, we can't sit down and, and do it right. You know, it's another stress. I can't meditate. I can't, I, I can't get those thoughts out of my head. I can't be focused. So it just becomes another thing you can't do right while you're rushing through the day to get everything mm-hmm. on the check look, checklist checked off. Yeah. If you're even organized to have a checklist. I don't, I'm not even that good. <laughs> but, but maybe that's because I'm, produ- I'm not as productive as I could be. <laughs> well, well, I, that's, yeah. it, that's it. I need to start making lists so I can be more productive. Uh, are you kidding? Yeah, well, I was being facetious. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I thought, wait a minute, wait, you're bending in the wrong direction here. We're talking to Almighty Todd on the program, and uh, he is our resident philosopher. And uh, I should have mentioned too, you're you're a sensei uh, in the in the martial art of uh, aikido, right? Am I saying that? I, I don't know if yes, I always say aikido. Aikido. Sorry. Uh, so yeah. You uh, you have a dojo, right? We have a little dojo that's been here actually uh, almost thirty years here in Vermont. Pretty and, cool. Uh, I mean, I've I've only been in charge of it for half that time, a little more than half that time. But um, but yeah, we've we've been here and we continue to practice. We've somehow made it through the pandemic, practicing online. Which how can you do that? But there's a lot of history and philosophy stuff that I was able to talk through with people and we're able to we're actually um only touching one another with a 10-foot pole for real right now for real <laughs> there's actually there's technical structure that you can do hand to hand but you can also do it you with a joe staff or a bow staff or i've got a, i've got some 10-foot rods that we've we've used and it's actually been kind of fun <laughs> so um it's not been it's not been regular practice and that's definitely been st- somewhat stressful for me just to not have the regular training and then and have to come up with some other modalities in the meantime but uh I, we're we're kind of we see the end of the tunnel coming and we'll be able to start practicing again masked but we'll be able to start practicing somewhat normally before too long yeah i'm sure it was I will difficult appreciate. Yeah. yeah for me i've been on the mat since i was eight years old so um this is the longest break I've had in kind of like a regular training structure that I would consider useful. And and do you, do you think um, what you do at the dojo uh, for your, for yourself with yourself and, and uh, those that you work with um, allows for the, the, the sort of, mentality or maybe the disconnect from the mentality better put to to happen oh yes without a doubt without a doubt um i mean that's the the training for me has been the only way i've been able to maintain like kind of mental stability over all these years in in the the tech work that i do in my regular job and and uh i i don't know quite how to explain it but it is um, because of the nature of the practice, when you walk through the door, you bow into the dojo. The idea is you really do try to drop everything that was happening outside and create a mental space for yourself where um, 
you're you're going in to train. And yes, you might have training goals. There might be stuff you're trying to improve. Um, and that that's usually when you're start just starting out. They're kind of like the belt goals that you're looking for and stuff like that. But after a while, the training itself creates the opportunity to see and learn things you hadn't seen before. It's just by going immersing yourself in it, it allows to you to expand your awareness and perception of what's going on in the world and what what influences us and what we can do to influence the stuff around us. Yeah. That's kind of high. That's highfalutin, but that it, it, to have that space carved out that that for that hour and a half or whatever it is um, is definitely a therapeutic thing, and I believe and i've been talking to other people that are teachers within our organization and there's a kind of like a push to try and finally articulate what it is that the, tra- the training offers specifically in the environment that we exist in these days what do you mean um, you mean just in the modern the modern world environment i mean budo practice a long time ago it had this stuff in it but it was the the level of life distraction was much different less um, and yes i would say less i mean i just i felt that the, the arc of life distraction change just in my own time period on the earth so i have to assume over a couple hundred years when people didn't have television and the internet and stuff like that and you actually read books or went and listened to lectures um you know there was a time in the united states the lyceum circuit mm-hmm. that mark twain went around talking on it educated people went around educating the public and the public actually went out of their way to go find that stuff um you think the general public or was it the f uh, you know affluent uh, no it was actually from my understanding it wasn't just the affluent it was it was meant for the general public consumption and um because there wasn't as much information out there that was important to focus on and you could you could really gain important stuff from now we spend most of our time trying to filter the amount of information that's coming at us and to try and figure out what stuff we want we can and want to consume which then thereby feeds back into our our discussion at the beginning is what is the reality we are creating for ourselves and then how do we bring other people into that reality i mean this is how you, someone who decides that there's a theory of life or a conspiracy theory that they've decided is real to them, and they'll create a web page or a Facebook page to discuss that and draw other people into that reality, even if it bears no resemblance to the, the factual world. And there is the ego again. Yes. Quiet so, it down. Yeah, so the 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 technological structures that we have now are essentially force multipliers for the ego. And I don't think any of us really understand the degree to which that weaponization of the ego through technology is disrupting societal connections. I mean, there may be studies being done about it, but it's like, it's not something that is, is, kind of conscious in people's minds oh big tech is a problem big tech might be bad but that's like you you can't and you know reduce it any more than that and have it not have any meaning i really feel like there's some very serious um 
reality bending stuff going on right now. I mean, if you look at what the GOP is doing this very moment and trying to oust Liz Cheney because she's speaking the truth, it, it's, it's mind boggling how an organization like that would go so far into the, the sphere of misinformation to create to try and first deny other people's realities and then create an alternate reality to draw people into. You know, to me, that is, um, it's, it's dangerous on so many levels. It's dysfunctional on so many levels. And there seems to be no ability for the general populace to discern that that's what's going on. Well said, almighty Todd. So we're just about done with this go-round, believe it or not. In, in a couple of words, from this point, how do, you, how do people maybe sort of thwart all of this bad juju? Well, I think, number one, like any, like any cult, disengaging from cult situations, is you really have to take time away from the sources of information, all of them, maybe. And then slow, you know, take a week off from all the websites that you normally go to. Take that time that you would normally spend reading those websites and go stand outside and watch the birds in your backyard or watch your own grass grow. Um, sweep your driveway, even though it doesn't need sweeping. I don't know, but disengage from everything and then only slowly wade back in. And do so with a, a you know, taking deep breaths and with a critical I and to you know be careful but know what confirmation bias is and know the gut feeling of oh yeah that's what I believe and reading that and, and know that there's a seduction potential that's happening there you know th think about looking at things that you want to ask questions about more than things that you want to agree with is, is my take on it right now well mighty Todd it's always a pleasure talking with you. Great Our, talking with you too, brother. Always, always. Our resident philosopher in Stockbridge, Vermont. Well, until next time, keep uh, on yeah, keep, keeping keep on. Keep it on. Keep it on, man. Play some good music tonight. I will. And uh, hopefully we get together soon. Oh, yes. Absolutely, man. Ciao, fratello. Ciao, brother. Libido point oh one burrito. You saw an alligator eat the neighbor like an hour later. You saw a stranger slip, bust his brains on an escalator.
they were wrong for me a shot from an article titled You Must Change Your Life by Harry Kunzru, published in the May 2021 issue of Harper's Magazine. The German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk has a more positive view of self-optimization. In his long and opinionated tome, You Must Change Your Life, he argues that Our obsession with growth and training is a secular form of monasticism. Once, religious ascetics performed spiritual exercises to bring themselves closer to God. In a society that doesn't universally accept that goal, we're left with a sense that striving for self-actualization is desirable, even urgent, but without agreement on its purpose. Slaughter Didjik takes the title of his book from the famous last line of Rainier Maria Rilke's poem, Archaic Torso of Apollo. Wandering through the Louvre sometime before the First World War, Rilke is confronted with a fragment of ancient statuary and experiences a luminous presence bursting forth, silently issuing a command. There is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. For Slaterdijk, the statue, quote, sets up an unconditional overtaxing that opposes the pragmatic consensus that one can only demand of people what they are capable of achieving in the status quo, end quote. At the core of what it means to be human, he argues, is a confrontation with limits, an encounter with impossibility. Quote, what is the human being, he asks, if not an animal of which too much is demanded? End quote. And now, a poem by Rilke, the poem just referenced. Archaic Torso of Apollo. We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, and yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in which his gaze, now turned to low, gleams in all its power. Otherwise the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise, the stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur, would not, from all the borders of itself, burst like a star. For here there is no place that does not see you, You must change your life.
Dreams of task and circumstance, as we are indoctrinated so young, our innocence just begun, 
the songs to be sung, already written, smitten, bitten, into deep. We wake, perhaps, from this sleep more complete, without fear and conceit, and the world of worlds combine in peace divine.
And there you have it, episode 420 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our good friend, Almighty Todd, Harper's Magazine, Hari Kunzru, Ranir Maria Rilke, and these musical artists. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, 10,000 Maniacs, Cage the Elephant, Iggy Pop, Man Man, Marvin Gaye, Bill Evans, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard too. And, of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.